Amen indeed. Amen. This is part two of the message that we, we started earlier this morning at uh, our divine worship service. Uh, this is part two. Before we get started, I invite you to uh, bow your heads with me. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you again once more for a beautiful Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had uh, to come together and to uh, study uh, together, to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to sing uh, psalms to you, sing songs from our hearts uh, and uh, to you because we love you. Father, please give us of the Spirit again. Uh, fill this place with the Holy Spirit and be with each one who is searching for truth as for hidden treasure. Uh, be with me as I bring this to the congregation and uh, may it be a blessing to all. May eyes be opened, uh, Lord, and uh, that we all may be prepared uh, for your son's soon coming. We thank you so much for Jesus and we pray this in his blessed name. Amen. <clears throat> Again, this is part two of the Easter deception, which we started with this morning. Uh, you remember, as we began in the message this morning, you remember that the Apostle Paul was very concerned uh, that the followers of Jesus would continue to live in the simplicity of Christ. Do you remember that? And he spoke of a different Jesus. He spoke of a different spirit and thus a different gospel that would arise uh, due to leaving that simplicity uh, of Christ, which in essence is exercising faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the, the Son of God, the true Son of God. So the question uh, that was brought to my mind was, have we gotten away from the simplicity that is in Christ? Are we following rituals and forms of worship that have been added to the Word of God removing that simplicity? Are we following a different Jesus by listening to a different spirit and thus you know, proclaiming a different gospel than that of the Bible? Have we fallen for the Easter deception? The only way to know for sure is to prayerfully look into the Bible and compare what we find to the rituals and, and the forms and traditions that we do keep. And I would encourage all of you to do that. What does the Bible say about our issue, our topic here? What does the Bible say about Easter? We're going back to, to part one. Do you remember the story about the death of Tammuz? And how Ishtar went looking for him? You know, in the underworld. And during her absence, the passion of love ceased to operate. And uh, all life on earth mourned and wept. Do you remember that? We covered that. The Bible calls this practice of weeping for Tammuz. You do find it. It is recorded in God's Word. And it calls this practice of weeping for Tammuz an abomination. And I want to share that with you. You find it in Ezekiel chapter 8 specifically. There are other places to speak about Ishtar or Astart. Notice what it says in verses 13 and 14 of Ezekiel chapter 8. He said also unto me, and this is, uh, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. And this was speaking of God's people, what they were doing within the church. Verse 14 says, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat weeping, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. This is in God's house. Now, God describes this practice as an abomination, frankly, because it's a form of idolatry, isn't it? And what does God's commandments uh, say to us? Well, Specifically, let's look at that, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. The Lord says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Isn't that what the Lord says? Isn't the Creator God the one who is due our worship, due our service, due our love and thanks? 
He goes on, he says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God likens idolatry to a hatred for Himself. If you are, are worshiping false gods and false idols, it's because you love them more than you love the Creator God. There is a hatred. God sees that as hatred towards Him. That's what He says. But verse 6 is encouraging. He says, In showing mercy, He shows mercy unto thousands of them that love Me and do not keep My commandments. They do not have any other gods before Him. They do not make graven images and bow down and worship them. They keep the commandments. Remember that after the period of mourning, that mourning for uh, Tammuz, the people would awaken early on Sunday and travel to the highest hills near their homes and, and present their offerings to the sun god. You remember we covered that? They would prostrate themselves before the rising sun. And what was it they would exclaim? Our Lord is risen. And it says that they would bake special cakes in the sun and eat them as part of their ritual, as part of the libations, part of the offerings that they would give to these false gods, and in this particular case to Tammuz. And in Jeremiah 7, verse 17, the prophet revealed... God's displeasure at this same idolatry by His people. By His people. His own people. Verse 17 says, Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the Queen of Heaven. You remember? The Queen of Heaven. And to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. So you see here in Jeremiah, it wasn't just the head of the household that was doing this. It was a family affair. Isn't it a family affair at Easter time? A family affair at Christmas time? Everybody's involved. And yet God says here, do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? Do, do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? In other words, he's saying they're calling down condemnation on themselves by their own actions. And I'll tell you, at this time, it wasn't just that they were in apostasy. It wasn't out of ignorance. It was open, outright rebellion. Now the same idolatry and sun worship found its way into the temple of the Creator God. So it started there. It's, in, it's within their family. They're doing these things. But as we've learned... In the past, in the study of who and what the church is, church begins in the home, doesn't it? And so you can see that this, this found its way into the very temple of God. Ezekiel chapter 8, we go back. Go verse 15. Then said he unto me, hast, hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn ye yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than, than these. Then these women who are making these cakes for Tammuz and weeping for Tammuz, they're greater abominations. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they worshipped the sun toward the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing 
Friends, I ask you, is it a light thing? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? Friends, is it a light thing? Oh, Pastor Joel, that was all in the Old Testament. That, you know, we, we, we're there because of Jesus. Well, which Jesus? The one that the apostles proclaimed? Or this false Jesus Paul was worried about and spoke of? Notice what he says here. He goes on, he says, For they have filled the land with violence, and have returned to provoke me to anger, and lo, they put the branch to their nose. That was an expression of, they flaunt it. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. This is really very serious, friends. God takes worship very seriously. <laughs> what the Lord God considered an abomination then, He still considers an abomination today. And friends, we must always remember the mistakes made in the past if we don't want to repeat them. That is why we have these experiences that, that God has preserved, that He has recorded in His Word. They are to remind us of what to do and what not to do. How to stay on course in the narrow path to the kingdom. And speaking of Easter, what the Bible has to say about it, did you realize that there is only one place in the entire authorized King James Version Bible where the word Easter is recorded, where it's translated. It's found in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. And it's just thrown in there, in essence, just to give a, an idea of the time that this was happening. It says, And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison. He delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. I've had people show that to me and say, see, it is biblical. They kept Easter. Well, friends, if you dig a little deeper, you have to realize that that's an English translation. If you go back to the original Greek there for Easter, it's Strong's number 3957. It's Pascha, which means Passover. It was the Passover time. And so the King James translators substituted the word Easter for the word Passover. Now why they did this, I really don't know. Uh, but it's too often true that the traditions of men tend to cloud our minds, doesn't it? And what we depend upon is the Holy Spirit to remove those clouds. Now I want to make it very clear, in case some people are wondering... <clears throat> I want to make it very clear that we should always remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a right way and there is a wrong way to do this. I know we live in a culture where everything tends to be getting blurred. There is no right and there is no wrong. Each one is decide to decide what is truth for themselves. That's a lie from the devil, friend. There is a right way and a wrong way to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Do you remember there within the Jewish church you had the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, and even among the Pharisees there was a split some people believed that there was a resurrection from the dead. Some people didn't believe that at all, thought it was a heresy, heretical teaching. And there was always conflict about it. And as the Jews followed Paul around, they would always bring such conflict with them. Paul, of course, believing the truth that is found in the Scriptures of the righteous 
being raised, that, that, that there is a resurrection from the dead, the righteous being raised to eternal life, the wicked to eternal damnation, be destroyed, the second death. And so he's bringing this to the, the church there at Corinth, with, which had a lot of issues going on, a lot of turmoil within that church. And he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Doesn't that make sense? If there is no resurrection, there's no way that Jesus could have been resurrected. And then he says, if Christ be not risen, well then our preaching is in, in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He did raise up Christ whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. In other words, if Christ be not raised, then Christ sinned somewhere, and the grave could keep him. He didn't win victory. So then our faith would be in vain. And we are yet in our sins. And Paul goes on and says, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead? and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Praise God, praise God, Christ was resurrected from the dead. Christ did gain the victory over sin over death. And so Paul lays this out and he says, we are to know that Jesus did rise from the dead and we are to preach this as the hope of the redeemed, for beloved it is the blessed hope. But are we to keep a special day in remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus? The Bible says not a day, but an ordinance. Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 and verse 3, he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. But what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about baptism. That word baptizo, it, it, basically, it just means immersion, complete immersion under the water. As when someone is buried, they are completely buried into the ground. And it represents two things, as Paul lays out here. Our faith in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. Remember, Paul said, if Christ be not risen, our faith is in vain, we are yet in our sins. But we have faith in the death of Christ for our sins, in His burial. And by the way, Jesus kept the Sabbath while He was in the tomb, didn't He? And then, the resurrection of Christ, giving victory. So it represents two things. It represents our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and it represents our death to selfishness the burial of our habits of sin and our resurrection to a new life in Jesus. Amen? 
So by going into the water to conduct, a, in essence, what you could call a spiritual funeral, and to celebrate the new life which has been begotten in, the, in, a, in a person through the Holy Spirit, Paul says we are also memorializing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus himself. And so the Bible says it's not a special day that is to be remembered. The resurrection of Jesus. It's not Sunday. And that's what the Easter proclaims. Oh, the Christian churches will be full tomorrow morning. They'll be there to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But the Bible doesn't sanctify Easter, friends, as a celebration to remember the resurrection of Christ. There is no biblical support for Easter. Easter is a pagan holiday celebrated in professed Christian churches to a false Christ on His holy day, Sunday. We've seen the history. Now, when we talk about this subject, there are always some questions that are you know, a natural result of hearing these things, you know, especially if you hear them for the first time, and, and I'm going to briefly address some of them that always come up. You know, one of the main ones is, what does the name Easter mean? Well, essentially it's an, it's an English word, but I'll read it to you from, is a handbook of Christian feasts and customs, page 211. The English word Easter and the German Ostern come from a common origin. Easter, Easter, Ostera, Ostar. Four different times. Four different names. Which to the Norsemen meant the season of the rising or growing sun. That's what it means. The season of new birth. Remember, who was Ishtar? Who was Easter? She was the goddess of fertility. That's what her name means. It means... The season of the rising or growing sun, the season of new birth, fertility. It has nothing to do with Christ. The word was used by our ancestors, it goes on to say, to designate the feast of new life in the spring. The same root is found in the name for the place where the sun rises, east or ost, east-er. Sun rises in the east, doesn't it? The word Easter then originally meant the celebration of the spring sun which had its birth in the east and brought new life upon earth. This symbolism was transferred to the supernatural meaning of our Easter to the new life of the risen Christ the eternal and uncreated light. So you see here that they, they are proclaiming themselves that they used these pagan rituals to put Christian names to, symbols to, in order to evangelize. Is that right? Does God do that? You'll find it nowhere in God's Word where He does such a thing. You see, what happens today is the, the, the whole idea of evangelistic efforts is, is contrary to God's Word. Many times plans are laid, they, they say, we're, we're going to lower our standards down to reach these people. And what happens when you lower God's standards? Eventually you don't keep them. What God does for us, friends, and what the resurrection of Christ really means is victory. He raises people up to His standards. <laughs> See? That's what got the church in trouble, was lowering the standards, bringing in all these pagans, just to increase in numbers. From the Catholic Encyclopedia on the, the word Easter, it says, The word Easter, which comes from the Anglo-Saxon, is a term derived from the pagan goddess of the dawn. And yet they still call it Easter. <laughs> Am I the only one that finds that preposterous? Yes, we're going to go to the, the church as Christians. We're going to celebrate Easter. 
Easter means the pagan goddess of the dawn. Do words not mean anything anymore? <laughs> I, just, I just find it amazing. It's just amazing to me. And they don't even hide it, and they never did with this one. What about the rabbit and the eggs associated with Easter? Where did they come from? Well, she was the goddess of uh, new birth, of fertility. Going back to associate professor Ruth Reichman from IUPUI in Indianapolis, she says, Easter, or a start. See, remember when we, we began this, this study that uh, I shared the names, the different names of the same false sun god, and depending on the culture, the name would be different, but it's the same false god. And that's what she's saying. Easter, or a start, or Ashereth. You find that in the Bible. We'll get to that in just a minute. She says, Easter's chief symbols were the hare, that would be the rabbit, both for fertility and because her worshippers saw a hare in the full moon, and the egg, symbolic of the cosmic egg of creation. Early Anglo-Saxon people at this time of year used to honor Easter at the first spring full moon, when Mother Earth awakened and the green, first green and spring flowers appeared. Eggs were used in these celebrations because they represented the beginning of life. The Easter rabbit is most commonly believed to be a symbol of fertility. And in ancient Egypt, it represented birth and new life. Because they have been associated with fertility for centuries, eggs symbolize the beginning of Earth's fertility period in many areas of the world. She says, The hare and the Easter bunny, eggs, newly hatched chicks, all are symbols of birth and rebirth. The custom of the Easter uh, bunny hiding Easter eggs can be traced back to the year 1682. Rabbits were also connected to other Easter customs, maybe because they have their litters at the time and so appear more often in people's gardens to nibble on the fresh greens. So again, we see the, the pagan origins of these traditions that are seen as harmless by Christians. But are such traditions really harmless? I think that's a good question to consider. The Bible doesn't say anything about Easter eggs and Easter rabbits, but there are warnings about worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, which is another name for Easter. Go to Judges chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 12. Judges 2, verse 12. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal. We've heard of Baal, haven't we? And Ashtaroth. Do you know who Ashtaroth was? Ashtaroth was another name to the same false god called Easter. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord hath sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. So you, you see here, they forsook God. And they, and they worshipped Baal. They served Baal. Sun God. You remember I shared with you, this is the foundation. You go back to history. This is the foundation of all uh, the pagan holidays and rituals that we find today. They all can be traced back to sun worship. The worship of Baal. That's his name in the Canaanites. Baal. But they didn't only serve Baal, the sun god, but also Ashtoreth, which also became the queen of heaven. Now John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, referred to Mary 
mother of Jesus, as the queen of heaven. This is no coincidence. And friends, I'll tell you, we must be careful that in participating in what we may consider harmless traditions, that we actually, like here in Judges, kindle the anger of the Lord. We go to Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. We see another example. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtoreth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not him. One of the major things about the the worship of Ashtaroth or Easter or the fertility gods was that they would have temples set up and they had what were called temple prostitutes. And the men would come and worship Ishtar or Easter and they would have they had these gardens that were were uh, laid out around in the land. It had altars around them. But they had hedges built around them. They were in shapes of the sexual uh, organs. <laughs> you be careful how I describe it here. And these prostitutes would take the men into these gardens and they would have orgies. This is an abomination to God. In fact, you read over and over when there was, was revival in the land, one of the first things they did was tear down those altars was destroy those hedges and those gardens. They all appeal to the senses of our human being. And that's where Satan attacks us, is through the senses. God has promised that we can have control over the senses if we commit our hearts, our lives to Him. Jesus proved it. And so here we see in Judges 10, verse 6 again, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. They began to follow all these false gods. And Ashtoreth is right there. That's Easter. Balaam, the gods of Syria, sun god, and all the other false gods. Now I'll ask again, if such traditions originate in paganism, is it safe for us to reason that they are harmless? Did God change somehow from the Old Testament to the New? Friends, this is something that should be seriously considered. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtoreth and serve the Lord only. Praise God. You see, it is possible <laughs> to overcome. You see, Jesus must be number one in our heart. He must be the one sitting on the throne of our heart. And if He is, it will be shown in our life by putting away such idolatrous traditions. God wrote quite a bit about idolatry throughout his, his Word. And if you think it's just a harmless thing that you do today, I pray that your eyes will be opened, friends. One question is, what's wrong with sunrise service on Easter Sunday? I've had some people ask me that. Well, it should be evident, I think, by now, <laughs> that there's a number of reasons why it's wrong for a Christian to send... Uh, to attend sunrise uh, uh, services on Easter Sunday. But let's look at a couple more scriptures that hopefully will, will help out here. The Bible says in Matthew 28, verse 1, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, right? Came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. Here we're speaking of the day of Christ's resurrection. Was he actually resurrected at sunrise? He says, because you remember, uh, Nimrod, the sun god, remember, 
Semiramis, his wife, said that he had went to be and become the son. And then Tammuz was born, the sun rising. Does it really celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? Did Jesus, was He resurrected at sunrise? That's a good question, isn't it? We read here in Matthew 28.1 that it was as it began to dawn towards the first day. In John 20 and verse 1, the Bible says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. The Bible says that the tomb was empty before sunrise. The resurrection already occurred. Perhaps hours before. We're not quite sure. It doesn't matter. But remember, when does a day begin? Biblically, a day begins at even. Doesn't it? So, nighttime Friday is actually the first half of Saturday, isn't it? Nighttime Saturday is actually the first part of Sunday. Let me share this with you from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 780. The night of the first day of the week had worn slowly away. This speaking of the resurrection of Christ. She says, The darkest hour just before daybreak had come. The darkest hour. You get that? Just before daybreak had come. Christ was still a prisoner in His narrow tomb. The great stone was in its place. The Roman seal was unbroken. The Roman guards were keeping their watch. At the death of Jesus, the soldiers had beheld the earth wrapped in darkness at midday. But at the resurrection, they saw the brightness of the angels illuminate the night. Was that at sunrise? She says, illuminate the night and heard the inhabitants of heaven singing with great joy and triumph. Thou hast vanquished Satan and the powers of darkness. Thou hast swallowed up death in victory. Amen and amen. We see that the evidence is plain in God's word that the resurrection took place before sunrise. Yet thousands of people gather each year facing east to the rising of the sun as an integral part of the resurrection service. Just as a pagan sun worshiper would do. Now, don't misunderstand. Clearly these people are not consciously worshiping the sun. Yet their actions, friends, let's think about this. Their actions would be indistinguishable from a pagan were one present at the same time to worship the rising of the sun. They both would be rejoicing at the moment of the rising of the sun. So, you know, despite their good intentions, and and I believe mostly in ignorance, uh, attending services on Easter Sunday is in fact celebrating the rising of the sun, not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God takes these things seriously. We read before how He treated His professed people for doing the same thing. Does God change? Things to consider, friends. Things to seriously consider. And as we learned before, baptism is the ordinance for remembering the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so, friends, at the beginning of this study, I set out to do five things, essentially. First was to give the source of this holiday. Second was to share how this holiday came in to Christianity. Third was to see what God's Word said about this holiday. The fourth thing was to answer some general questions, which I've just done. And uh, the fifth was to come to a conclusion. And, and, and that's what I'm going to do now. We'll come to a conclusion here. And while this hasn't been a, an, what you would call an exhaustive study, you know, leaving every single stone turned, 
it's been through, uh, uh, it's been enough to come to a sound conclusion based on the weight of evidence, both from history and God's Word. So what can we conclude from this study? Well, friends, we found that Easter first originated from ancient pagan sun worship. That it was adopted from paganism into a fallen Christian church over time, mainly in an effort to gain converts. It was never considered sacred or holy by the apostles and early Christians. It has no scriptural evidence to support its supposed sacredness or celebration. It's a man-made tradition. And it's a man-made tradition that does not please God. Now, who brought this deception in? Well, clearly, is the enemy of our souls. He pushes the Easter deception with aid from His representative on earth. We find it's not a sacred day to the Creator God. It's not one for us to keep holy. And for those who think, well, it really doesn't matter, I'd say that lies are never harmless no matter how small they may appear to be. Let me give you an example. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to, to, to uh, serve Jesus and follow Jesus and believe in His resurrection, and yet you take your children out on Easter egg hunts. One day that child is going to ask you about that, and they're going to wonder why you lied. That, will throw, that throws doubts on anything you've ever said. That throws doubts upon the actual resurrection of Christ. Friends, we have to be very careful what comes out of our lips. The prophet says in Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, Testimonies for the Church, error is never harmless. It never sanctifies, but always brings confusion and dissension. It is always dangerous. The enemy has great power over minds that are not thoroughly fortified by prayer and established in Bible truth. I've seen it again and again. And so, friends, if, if Easter is not a Christian holy day, then who's truly at the heart of its celebration? I mean, what Christ is celebrated in the observance of these days called holy by the Catholic Church and most all of Christendom? The Christ of the Bible or another Christ? Remember that Paul warned of this other Christ in 2 Corinthians 11. And to those Christians who hold such a day as, as holy or sacred, regardless of the evidence to the contrary, I'm constrained to ask, well, which Christ do you follow? How readest thou? Is what I would ask. Do you follow Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of the Sabbath day, or the unconquerable sun God that declares Sunday as His holy day? Are you baptized into Jesus in remembrance of His life, death, and resurrection, or do you hold Easter sunrise services instead? Maybe get a sprinkling of rose petals as a baptism. Completely unbiblical. Do you worship the Son of God who died on Calvary for our sins or the baby born on December 25th, the unconquerable sun god known as Tammuz? Friends, I encourage you seriously think about these things. Seriously. You know, in Revelation 14.7, we are admonished to fear God and give glory to Him. Isaiah 42.11 says, For how should my name be polluted? and I will not give my glory unto another. Friends, are we giving the glory to God when we celebrate such unholy days, or are we giving the glory unto another? And the Lord lovingly tells us in Acts 17, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Friends, God overlooks our faults and shortcomings when we serve Him to the best of our knowledge. But after He, re after he reveals truth to us, then we are, no, 
We no longer have an excuse for our ignorance. And the question comes down to each and every professed believer of God regarding these days. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. Again, you know, there are those who will say, yes, this is all true. One of my wife's friends said that. Oh, I understand the history of it, but I celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Wow. You understand the history of it? Really? Yes, it's all true, but we've baptized these admittedly pagan days and made them holy to God, so there's really no problem. Well, I'll try to give an answer to such a reaction. Let's consider an episode in the Bible of such a baptism of paganism. And let's see how God responded. I invite you to go to Exodus chapter 32. Here we are at the base of Mount Sinai. <clears throat> Moses is up in the mountain. They think he's dead, gone, disappeared, ran back you know, away. Who knows? And so they come up to Aaron. They said, Moses is gone. We need a symbol for God. And verse 4 says, And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the golden calf. No, that's not what he said. He said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Friends, you do a search and, and study on that word rose up to play. And they had an orgiastic uh, session <laughs> in essence. <clears throat> the fertility gods, you see. And so Aaron made a pagan uh, golden calf and then declared a festival to the Lord. And what did the people do? They brought offerings, had plenty to eat and drink, and made merry in celebration and uh, in following the gods of fertility. Now I'll ask you, was God pleased by any of this? Well, of course, it really didn't matter, did it? Because the calf, they were doing it all in the name of God, Right? We're celebrating Easter in the name of God and His resurrection, right? It's harmless, right? We made a golden calf and called it God, right? That's harmless. God was not pleased by any of that. Their feast was an abomination before the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 20 says that Moses ground up... <coughs> excuse me. You read in verse 20, it says that Moses ground up the golden idol to powder and made the people drink it. Can you see the parallel? <laughs> really? They called something man-made sacred and holy and then called for a feast in honor of Jehovah. Doesn't it sound an awful lot like what the Catholic Church has done with these, these supposed holy days? And sadly, many of God's professed people go to worship on Sunday believing it to be sacred. Many of them turn to the east toward the rising sun on a pagan Sunday that has no biblical foundation whatsoever. They have Easter egg hunts, baskets full of candy, sumptuous meals, many of them including an Easter ham, which is biblically unclean, forbidden food, and call it a festival to the risen Lord. Now just what do you think Moses would have to say to us today about all of this. Can you picture Moses joining in the celebration? Aaron, maybe. <laughs> Moses? I don't think so. But Pastor Joe, that all happened in the Old Testament. 
We're not under the old covenant, but the new. God understands my heart, and I, I've been saved, so it matters not to me. He won't hold that against me. Well, believe it or not, friends, the Bible says we will be judged by what we do and what we say. Let me give you some, something else to think about. In Daniel chapter 3, we're told about King Nebuchadnezzar who made an image of gold in the plains of Dura. And he made a decree. And it says there in Daniel 3 and verse 5, this, this decree, it says that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. We teach our kids this story, don't we? The three Hebrew worthies. We miss some of the most pointed testimony in the story. There was a death decree attached to the worship, wasn't there? Now it was told the king that there were some Hebrews who would not bow down and worship the man-made image, namely who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right? And the king was happy about that, wasn't he? No, he was furious. And so he questioned these men. If you go down to verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, friends, I want you to notice the answer given by these men to the king. I want you to notice it. Notice their behavior. Notice their attitude. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we have seriously considered this. We're not just being flippant. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, even if God doesn't deliver us, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We are going to live by the principles of the scriptures that we know. We don't know whether God wants to save us or not, and that doesn't matter. We know that we're doing His will by not bowing down. And so the king was furious, wasn't he? And he did throw these men into the fiery furnace where Jesus appeared and saved them from death. And many Christians know this story, and they've told it over and over to their children because it has such a happy ending. But they fail to understand exactly what is being revealed to them. You see, this was a warning. <laughs> this was a warning for us who live hundreds of years later. Thousands of years later. Those who live during the time of the end are going to have to deal with an image that also has a death decree attached to it as well. And it's spoken of in Revelation 13. It talks about a second beast there in Revelation 13. And a beast means a kingly or a political power. And it says that this kingly or political power is going to arise and it's going to create an image to the first beast power, which was a combination of church and state. The church made decrees, the state carried them out. And it talks about how that first beast appeared to have been previously destroyed years before. Let's go there. Let's go to Revelation 13. Let's look at verse 14. <clears throat> and it says, and it, and it deceives them that dwell on the earth, this beast, by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So here's another image. Look at verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that means legislate and enforce, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast 
should be killed. Sounds an awful lot like Daniel 3, doesn't it? And just like in Daniel's time, many will bow down, many will worship the man-made image in order to live temporarily. And I say temporarily because in bowing down to the image, they will forfeit their eternal life. You see, they choose a different God than the Creator. You see, beloved, God has given us the Bible to teach us about His character. To think that it is of such little consequence what we do and what we say is to be very negligent. You see, beloved, who we worship matters a lot to God. And the choices we make stay with us. And those who think that it's okay to hold Sunday and Easter as sacred should learn the lesson of the past and consider their future very seriously. The same fallen church that considers these days as sacred and worthy of our worship, who incorporated them into the church against the wishes of God, is depicted in prophecy as Babylon. As Babylon fallen. <clears throat> and the present truth for our time gives a warning about Babylon. It's found in Revelation 14. If you go to verse 8, it says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, we just read about that in the chapter before, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. That means without any mercy, friends. In the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, the presence of the Lamb. Let me ask you, friends, do you really think it is safe to worship holidays instituted by spiritual Babylon? The Lord God has given us His Word to test such things, to see if they are truly sacred or not. And you should be asking, is what I've been teaching in line with God's Word? Is it consistent with the Scriptures? Is it consistent with the spirit of prophecy? Is it consistent with history? If it's not, well, then you ought to disregard it. <laughs> and not only that, Share with me what the truth is. But if it is, then you ought to consider it carefully and heed it. Now, you may, of course, disagree with Scripture at this point. You may disagree with my assessment of the historical background. I could be wrong about that. But what you must do with a message like this is what the Berean Christians did. What they did with Paul's preaching. They searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. You must openly, honestly, and realistically evaluate the evidence for yourself and come to your own conclusions because ultimately you will have to answer to God just as I do. You see, you're not responsible to me. You're responsible to God. And Peter and the other apostles said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's the bottom line. I say let us obey God. For in the end it does matter. And it matters a lot. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, again we thank you so much for a beautiful Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to come together. And, and Father, look at a subject that, uh, that can be hard for many, but a subject that we need to understand. We need to understand the times that we're living in. We need to understand why we do the things that we do. We need to question such things. We need to compare such things to your holy word. Father, we want to do things that are pleasing to you. We find those things in your word. But sometimes we look at things without sanctified eyes. And sometimes we do traditions because they feel good. And so, Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit to help us to come to a right understanding, to, to give us ISAP so that we may see 
because ultimately we want to be a part of your family and we want to be found faithful and so Lord I pray that you be with each and every one here everyone who can hear my voice that the Holy Spirit will be very near to them and lead them to the truth and lead them to the kingdom so that we all can be together and with Jesus forever that's my prayer in Jesus name I want to thank everyone for coming. Are we going to sing a, a closing hymn or not? Well, I would say we will be here uh, next week.